The initial premise behind the product was detox, hydration, and energy. We've evolved as the product has evolved and the market has evolved to really just this notion of recovery, getting you back to your best self faster. That's Dave Kalina, co-founder and CEO of O2, an oxygenated recovery drink for people living active lives. Dave founded the company with his business partner, Dan, after seeking to replace the high-sugar energy drinks they were turning to after workouts. The quest led them to oxygenation, a process that pumps extra oxygen into liquid and can help your body process toxins faster. This speeds up recovery after a hard workout and was just a differentiator they were looking for. I'm Richie Siegel, the founder of Loose Threads, which analyzes and advises next-generation consumer companies, and Facelift by Loose Threads, a retail incubator and accelerator for leading brands and retailers. For our latest analysis and insights, check out our free weekly newsletter at loosethreads.com. We also announced Loose Threads Live, our invite-only and entirely off-the-record gathering for founders, executives, and investors on October 3rd in New York City. Learn more at loosethreads.com live. I started the Loose Threads podcast to spark engaging discussions with leaders across the consumer economy. That's why I was excited to talk with Dave about how he relied on CrossFit gyms to grow the brand's audience and how it's using that foundation to expand into the national grocery arena. Here's how it all began. I found myself in this position where I was drinking a lot of Red Bull and a lot of Gatorade, and I started to look for healthier alternatives. I wasn't doing CrossFit yet, which has become a big part of our business, but I was doing like my own high intensity interval training. And so I was starting to take fitness pretty seriously, nutrition pretty seriously. And I couldn't find anything that worked as well for me as the traditional sports and energy drinks. And I couldn't find anything that had a better nutritional profile at the same time. So there was stuff out there that, you know, was better for you. I've always wanted to like coconut water, for example, just could never really get past that taste. And so I approached a friend of mine, who at the time was finishing his medical residency at Ohio State's hospital to see what he did instead. He had a very similar lifestyle to me. He was also working all the time. He was pretty fit, had an active social life. After I asked this question, you know, I'm I'm drinking all this Red Bull and Gatorade. I know it's not good for me, but I can't find anything else better. What do you do? He sort of shamefully looked at me. He's like, well, I I drink the same shit and just feel bad about it. Talk briefly about why there's such, I guess, mass adoption of what is not the greatest thing for you in those environments? I think historically there just hasn't been a range of options. Gatorade's story dates all the way back to the 1950s, I think, is when the University of Florida started to experiment with it for their football team. And up until recently, it was Gatorade and Red Bull. And so if you go to a grocery store or a convenience store, you know, there's still most of the facings are probably dominated by the Gatorades, Powerades in the sports section and the Red Bulls and Monsters in the energy section, but you're starting to see more and more cleaner options available. Mm -hmm. And so I think that with the rise of sort of a more transparent environment in the late 2000s around what people are putting into their body, I think that's also kind of given rise to other brands that provide cleaner, healthier alternatives like O2. Those brands, the Gatorades, the Powerades, the Red Bulls and Monsters, I mean, they were also incredible marketing oh, yeah. machines, right? Like, would you attribute that to their entire success effectively? A hundred percent. And what Gatorade and Red Bull have, have both done really, really well is to lock in certain retailers. So an example, Dan and I both went to Ohio State 
And so as the company founders, we've got pretty deep roots in Ohio State. The company's based in Columbus. And we had been approached by somebody from Ohio State wanting to carry our product. And it got all the way up to the key decision makers when the decision was squashed because Ohio State has a contract with Coca-Cola, which owns Powerade, and Powerade sees us as a direct competitor. Mm -hmm. And so I think that many of the sort of legacy brands have done a really good job of locking in contracts like that. But at the same time, more and more options are prolific, especially you know, direct to consumer. Yep. And so I think that's kind of loosened that grip on the consumers by those companies. Yep. So if we go back to the beginning again, yeah. I forgot where I cut you off. So I think we were right at the need that both he yes. and I had for a product like this. So the two of us were at the time, I think we were you know, in our mid to late 20s had very few obligations outside of our careers and could effectively conquer anything if we put our minds to it, right? So we kind of looked at each other and like, all right, well, you have this problem and I have this problem. Chances are other people like us do too. We should just make our own drink. How hard can that be? Famous last words. <laughs> Turns out it's pretty tough. And so we set out to basically build a better mousetrap around 2010. Dan's a doctor, not a food scientist, right? I was in corporate strategy and marketing at an insurance company, certainly not a CPG. Neither of us had any inkling of what it was going to take to take this product and make it into a real thing. So we kind of spun our wheels for about a year, validated that, yeah, our friends would be interested in something like this. And then in 2011, Dan came across a really compelling peer-reviewed medical study that showed the accelerating effects of ingested oxygen on the liver's metabolism of toxins. And so he shared this with me and immediately I thought, huh, that's kind of interesting. The strategist in me was already looking for something to make different and make the unique hook. about, yeah, what's the hook? Like it's okay to be a better version of Gatorade and Red Bull, people get that, but is that enough? And so immediately I thought, that's our hook. The oxygen thing, that's it. Dan felt the same way. It's like, this is a really underutilized ingredient, so to speak. And in the medical community, it's pretty well known, the benefits of ingesting oxygen, but nobody you know, outside of medicine really knows that, mm. right? Why so, do you think that was? It just hasn't been commercialized before. And I can tell you why now. It's really challenging to make an oxygenated drink. But again, our naivety played to our benefit for yeah. sure there. So we started to network our way into the beverage industry. And little did we know that there are key players that you kind of have to line up to get something made and produced, one of which is a flavor house, another is a co-packer. You can certainly try and make something yourself that comes with its own challenges. But we started to reach out to these folks, and in every conversation, as soon as we got to the oxygen piece, we got laughed out of the room. Hmm. Had um, they even heard of it, or they were just like, no? Well, so in the beverage industry, you're taught to keep oxygen out of products, much less put it in. Because? So oxygen is corrosive. You know, it doesn't play well with other ingredients. It's one of those things where there's a certain threshold of, let's call it two parts per million. If you're over that threshold in most beverage, you're not in a good place. And so we had begun to have these conversations and we quickly realized there's a lot to this that we just don't know. One thing being this whole notion of adding oxygen to a drink. So not only do you not want to keep it out, we want to add it in. And so we found that nobody in the industry was really willing to talk to us. And after about another year of spinning our wheels, 
we thought, you know what, let's just try and make this ourselves. Let's take it into our own hands and see if we can make this drink ourselves since nobody else would do it for us. And so there was a small restaurant in a part of downtown that was kind of up and coming in Columbus called the Short North. And it was a Cajun restaurant. And Cajun food is all cooked in large batches. And so we approached this restaurant about leveraging part of their kitchen that was underutilized most of the week because the batch cooking was done over the weekend and the kitchen wasn't really being used on Monday, Tuesday. We approached the owner of this restaurant and he allowed us to pay, I don't know, 50 bucks a month or 50 bucks a week, whatever it was in rent, so to speak. And we hired a food scientist from Ohio State to actually formulate this drink. So we gave him some parameters to work within, and and he did the formulation. We bought a bunch of ingredients off of Amazon and at our local homebrew store in Columbus. And we procured a old restaurant bar gun from a restaurant supply store. So the type that you would see at a bar that squirts out, you know, the Coke or the Pepsi or the soda water or whatever. And then we also procured somewhat illegally, probably a tank of medical oxygen. I'll let you figure out how we did that. And so we had all the components in order to make this drink ourselves. So the food scientists gave us some guidance on the recipe for this beverage. And we were making it in this kitchen in small little batches, the same way that Coke or Sprite will come out of a bar gun. It's a syrup and a water mixture. So we would make the syrup and then we would oxygenate the water and it all came combined through this bar gun. And so we started to bottle the product in small case batches and universally all of our friends that we tested this with was like this just terrible tasting drink. Like this is awful, but it works like a charm. What does work mean in that in the, or at that time what did work mean? So originally the idea was all right, we want to get folks back to normal faster. So after grueling physical or mental activity, we want to bring people back to their best selves. And often that would include after a long night out for our cohort of friends in their mid 20s too. And so folks began to play around with this drink in different scenarios and it was universally regarded as a very, very functional beverage. Like this drink just works. It, I mean, I, it hydrates me really quickly. I feel better after I work out, cures my hangover, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We knew that we were on to something once we got that feedback. And then we went into, let's say, 10 to 15 stores in Columbus selling this drink that was in the silly glass packaging and tasted terrible. We were selling it for five bucks. But the proof of concept is what we were looking for there. And we got strangers to buy it and then rebuy it and rebuy it. And we really knew we were on to something once we heard that the Ohio State basketball team was buying it by the case and using it before and after games. Hmm. But it still tasted bad. Still tasted terrible. Yeah. So this was still a part-time endeavor for both me and Dan. But once we had the product to that proof of concept stage is when I became personally ready to take the dive. So we did about, it was either six to nine months of this pilot. And then I decided to leave my day job. And I knew that we had something functionally, we just had to make it taste right, right? And so I felt like you could probably hire that out. You could probably outsource that to a flavor house. And we did. And so we found a flavor house that would work with us and partnered with us in a way that really nobody had up to that point, because now we had a track record, we had proof of concept, whereas before it was just a pipe dream by a couple guys who didn't know what they were doing. 
And after about a, let's call it nine month formulation process, we had the components of this beverage bottled that actually tasted good and a recipe that was all natural and delivered on those functional benefits that we knew were important. And we were ready to put it into production. What did you go for with the taste? So with the taste, we were looking for something that was kind of light, crisp, refreshing, not overly sweet, something that I would describe as chuggable after a workout. And I think that's where we arrived at. And it's hard to make something taste really, really good when it's functionally equivalent to two and a half times the electrolytes of, say, a Gatorade and has as much caffeine as a cup and a half of coffee and only 20 calories and two grams of sugar. And it has to be all natural. So that's a pretty tall order. And that wasn't something that I was really willing to compromise on either, especially after I'd invested the rest of my life savings into getting this right. We were going to get it right. So we still work with the same flavor house today. And I joke with them that, you know, we're probably the largest pain in the ass client that they've ever had, because we certainly won that value equation. Like the most of their engagements don't last nine months in formulation. We played it out until the recipe was actually perfect or as close to perfect as we could possibly get it. And only then were we going to put it into production you had kind of the blueprint now of what could be produced where to after that once we had the formulation prepared i had pulled together a small group of about five people who had served as various mentors to me at different points in my career to effectively build out an advisory board and from that advisory board we did a very small fundraise that would allow us to do a a large-scale production run And we found a producer that happened to be already bottling an oxygenated water in a can out in California. I mean, so many stars had to align for this to come to fruition. In retrospect, it's still kind of crazy. Like the fact that they were producing an oxygenated water in a can in a cold fill capacity and doing so in a way that was all natural, so didn't have any preservatives, so there was an all natural kill step in there and packaging it in 12-pack cases, those are a lot of things that had to intersect there. But we found it, and we were able to convince this guy to give us a shot, and he did. And so we did our first production run in February of 2014, and I was still the only full-time employee, full-time or part-time or otherwise employee. Dan, the doctor, never left his day job. He was still a doctor. And we had... I don't know how many pallets, maybe 60 to 80 pallets of this product come in, which was a lot for us at the time. And I was solely responsible for selling it. So it was pretty overwhelming once the product actually hit the market. So in terms of the sales, you know, you'd come from the marketing side before. What was the plan or the strategy of how you would get rid of 60 to 80 pallets? Yeah, I came across that plan not too long ago and and laughed because it doesn't look anything close. Oh, like the actual document? Yeah, the actual document. What was on there? So it was a business plan that I wrote as part of our first round of family and friends fundraising that was modeled largely off of Honesty's business plan. Honesty made their business plan public and basically I just took that template and then reworked it to be fitting to O2. It was based around introducing the product to convenience stores and to kind of independent retailers 
and I can't remember what we projected in terms of sales or volume or, or whatever, geography, but it had nothing to do with direct-to-consumer and it didn't have anything to do with selling to various CrossFit gyms or yoga studios. And now those two parts of our business are certainly two of our largest. So the business plan as it was written then was just a more traditional route to market type of business plan for a drink. What actually happened was much, much different. What actually happened was once we had two semi trucks full of this product that nobody had ever tried before roll into town, I had to figure out how to sell it. And I basically sold it out of the back of my car to anyone who would buy it. And for the first three or four months of the business, that allowed me to get a really, really good feel for what types of retailers are going to perform the best with this drink and what types aren't. And so I quickly realized that it would take me just as much time to drive to our warehouse and pick up two cases of O2 and drop it off at a convenience store as it would drive to our warehouse and pick up 10 cases of O2 and drop it off at CrossFit Hilliard. And both of those retailers would sell through that same order in about two or three weeks. Mm -hmm. So the ROI on my time, which was like everybody is super limited, like I can only make so many deliveries in a certain day, was all with the CrossFit gyms. And it just so happened, based on my own background as a trainer, that I had a bunch of buddies who had CrossFit gyms in the area and were initially willing to do me a favor and put it on sale at their gym. And it turns out it did really, really well. That captive audience is so ripe for our product. I mean, they read labels, which is good for us, and they get it. And our product is also non-carbonated, and every other drink out there in the space is carbonated. Mm -hmm. And so it's very, very distinct in taste alone. And it's got a very clean nutrition facts panel, which is important. So looking back, it made perfect sense that this audience was going to be so quick to adopt our product. But I remember very early on at one of our advisory board meetings prior to the business actually getting off the ground, somebody asked me if I thought we should sell it at the CrossFit gym that I coached at. And I thought, that's a stupid idea. You know, I bring my protein shake that I make at home into the gym. And right. You have to display I'm, something. Yeah, right? Who's going to buy a product at a gym? That's silly. Well, little did I know, a lot of people are going to buy products at gyms. And so it was one of those things where we just had to see it in the native environment in order to fully understand the potential. In terms of, I guess, the efficacy at that point, what was your level of comfort and or ambition of like what you're going to claim it does? Because the efficacy yep. is a huge part of oh, it. Oh, it's a huge part. But you also can go really overboard on 100%. that and piss people off totally. and so forth. And what's really interesting is that since we launched O2, we launched back in 2014. And so the initial premise behind the product was detox, hydration, and energy. We've evolved as the product has evolved and the market has evolved to really just this notion of recovery, getting you back to your best self faster. What's also interesting is that we've been fortunate enough to have done this over the course of the last few years when some really compelling peer-reviewed medical studies have come out on the efficacy of ingested oxygen clearing lactic acid faster from the body. That's not something that we planned for. That's kind of a happy accident. These studies hadn't been done by the time we launched O2, but we started to hear from our own customer base very, very early on that, gosh, when I drink O2, I just feel less sore the next day. And Dan and I both didn't really have anything to back that up. We didn't know why that would be. You know, I guess it kind of made sense 
anatomically, but there was no science that supported that until I want to say 2015, 2016 is when the first one of these studies came out that indicated that actually oxygenated water will help the body clear lactate faster. And there was another one done in 2017. And so the body of evidence isn't quite as robust as the premise of detox, but it's very much growing and it's very interesting to us because it lines up directly with what we hear over and over and over again from our customers around, if I drink an O2 after I work out, I'm just less sore the next day. It helps me feel better, faster, in a way that I quite can't put my finger on, in a way that's different from you know a cup of coffee or just rehydrating. So you're starting to kind of scale in CrossFit gyms now at this point. Where do you start to, I guess, spend your time? And so we're in 2014, 2015? Yep, 2014, still just me selling O2 out of the back of my Prius. And I started to spend my time with the CrossFit gyms. And another blossoming market for us was with Whole Foods and retailers like Whole Foods. So I knew with O2 that I always wanted to get it into Whole Foods. It's where I shopped and values aligned with what I believe in around food and quality. But I also knew that I didn't want to blow it with Whole Foods right out of the gate. And so one thing that I did early, which I think helped, was to test the waters a little bit with mom and pop grocery stores in the local market so that I could kind of refine the pitch and refine my position and learn about what it would take to be successful in that environment. And so for the month of March of 2014, I was basically camped out at a local grocery store every weekend sampling O2, and it did really, really well there. And so in April, I approached a larger but still kind of regional grocer called Lucky's Market to carry O2, and I did the same thing at that store. And then once it was successful there is when I approached my local Whole Foods store. And the same story, we killed it there. And it was just by nature of sampling the product, giving folks a taste, doing a little bit of education. But once I had the data from the Whole Foods store on Lane Avenue in Columbus on how well sales were going there, I could approach the Whole Foods store in Dublin. And once I did the same thing, rinse and repeat for success at that store, I could do the same thing with the Cincinnati stores and I could do the same thing with the Cleveland stores. So the business really became rooted in CrossFit gyms and Whole Foods stores in 2014. And that was largely our strategy for 2015, 2016, because there was also a nice amount of overlap there too. Crossfitters shop at Whole Foods stores. People who do yoga shop at Whole Foods stores. There's a beneficial overlap between the two that actually helps both types of retailers. Are you selling online at this point or not yet? We were selling a little bit online. It wasn't a focus because unfortunately we sell a product that's really heavy to ship, right? And high shipping costs were extremely prohibitive at the outset. Now we did debut our product online in 2014 and we made it available for our friends and family to purchase online, which is basically the only people buying it online at the time, but it was costing us an arm and a leg. And so we didn't emphasize it, but we started to emphasize online sales a little late. We didn't quite get to take advantage of the super cheap (laughs) paid social boom, but it was closer to end of 2016, early 2017 is when we started to focus online because we found that just like we could grow the brand with hyper-targeted, focused marketing in CrossFit gyms, 
So for example, if you show me a CrossFit gym with 100 members, I'll show you 80 people who are going to be receptive to our product. We could also hyper-target people online. And so that's what we did. And we found the same level of upside there, as it just started to work really, really well because it resonated with that same type of person. And it became very complementary to our grocery business too. Because if we're in a market where we have built a pretty solid direct-consumer following and or a pretty solid gym following, then as soon as we open up traditional retail in that market, it's going to do pretty well because we've got people pulling it off the shelf from day one. In 2015, 2016, I guess, what are you spending time on that needs improvement, isn't working as well, et cetera? 2014 is when we really suffered our first crisis as a company. And in retrospect, it wasn't much of a crisis, but it really felt like one at the time. That was very, very early on into the first year of the business. I distinctly remember where I was and sort of how this unfolded, kind of like it was yesterday. There was a Facebook message that came through to our Facebook page from somebody who had just tried O2 and he was like, hey, this is great. I really love you know what you guys are doing here. The flavor is awesome, but the nutrition facts, I don't think it could be possible that they're right because it says that you guys have 360 grams of sodium in your product and 370 grams of potassium. Can that be right? And so I look at my phone and I immediately think, okay, this guy's got a nutrition-related question. I'm going to kick that over to Dan, the doctor. So I sent Dan a text. I was like, hey, man, you know, can you check Facebook? Somebody has a question about our nutrition facts panel. So I go back to what I was doing. I think I was packing boxes for shipment. Dan calls me about 10 minutes later. And that was my first sign that, that something was off, was a phone call in the middle of the day versus a text message or an email. And so I pick up the phone. And he's like, hey, man, are you sitting down? I'm like, no, I'm not. What's up? And so he said, well, we've got a problem. You know that guy who just asked if there were 360 grams of sodium and 370 grams of potassium in O2? I was like, yeah. He was like, well, if that were true, we would have over a pound of salt per can in our product. We made a typo on the label. I'm like, oh, my God, you've got to be kidding me. And so completely irrationally, I rush out to our warehouse and I start pulling product off of pallets, looking at the back of every can. And sure enough, we made a giant typo on the nutrition facts panel, which said that we had grams instead of milligrams. So I didn't know that this is actually fairly common occurrence in, in food and beverage, shockingly enough. And there are many ways to sort of write that wrong, but I had no idea at the time. And I was two weeks into this. And so I remember thinking, well, we had a good run at it. You know, we got a product that people seem to really like off the ground. And sure, I've disappointed basically everybody who I've ever cared about who's helped me in one way or another with this business getting it to this point. But at least it'll be a good story in the future. As soon as I picked myself off the floor, basically, I called a really prominent beverage attorney and talked through the issue with him, thinking he was going to tell me that, no, it's, it's over. Shut you it know, down. you yeah. got to shut it down. And he was like, actually, this is pretty common. And you can either hope nobody sees it and sweep it under the rug, which wasn't really our style. Or you can try to cover up with a sticker the nutrition facts panel. And technically, it'll read accurately, but it'll look kind of silly. You just hope nobody really notices. Also not our style. Or you can put like an announcement on the website and say, hey, you know, we screwed up. This should be milligrams versus grams. Sorry. And so I thought, you know, none of those options really sound great, right? 
But what we ended up doing, I think, was the first time where our values sort of came into fruition and materialized. What we ended up doing was we took the sticker idea and we took the announcement idea and we combined them into one. And we got about 150,000 stickers that read, oops, our bad. This should be in milligrams versus grams, something like that. And we spent every weekend hand stickering every single can that we had in our warehouse. We would take a case off a pallet, unpack it, put a sticker on the can, put it back into the case and put it back on a pallet. We hand labeled about 150,000 cans over the course of those first six months. And so that was a moment, sure, of crisis management for us, but it was also a moment of a values-based business kind of living up to those values. That's when, you know, we have three values at O2. We take them really seriously, honesty, humility, and hustle. That's when we really figured out how we want to roll as a company. And so over the course of the rest of that year, when we weren't stickering cans, we were trying to figure out the best model to effectively build and scale the business that doesn't involve just me driving around in my Prius everywhere in Ohio. And that was another challenge in and of itself. How did that, I guess, start to come together? Because as you were describing it, there's definitely like the unscalability of you yep. being in the aisle all day. So we ended year one at about 50 to 100 CrossFit gyms and all the Whole Foods stores in Ohio, which were all the accounts that I could personally service myself out of the back of my car. And so we then had to solve for the same strategy, just on a larger scale. And shipping costs were still pretty prohibitive. But what we were able to do is we found a type of shipper called a small parcel delivery company that would warehouse a couple pallets of our product and they would pick, pack and deliver it anywhere in Ohio or Pennsylvania, so our surrounding tri-state area, for four bucks a case, two day, which is insanely cheap. And so we started to assemble a network of these small parcel delivery companies across the United States who would do effectively the same thing. And then we would just focus on getting products sold into CrossFit gyms and getting products sold into Whole Food stores. And we had a route to market that didn't involve the margin sacrifices of, say, a distributor or the pains of Dave delivering it himself out of the back of his car, but was close to scalable. All right, so it sounds like the direct business is kind of starting to grow a little bit in terms of inflection points or where you're spending your time two to three years in now. Yeah, two to three years in, I still had my hands in most things. I had a employee in year two, and then I think we had another two join in 2016. So still very, very small team. And most of my time was spent on sales, sales and marketing. I hesitate to even call it marketing because what we were doing was really just feet on the street type sales, knocking on doors and closing new accounts. The business started to get to a point where we could actually entertain kind of a more advanced sales model, I would say around 2016, when we basically knew how much upside was in CrossFit for us and how to unlock that upside. And so we got very, very formulaic about not only closing new accounts, but also how to make sure that those accounts were successful with our product. And so we went through an exercise in 2016 where we mapped out the entire from prospecting to 
onboarding to retention account process for CrossFit gyms. And we found some pretty big holes in there that we were able to fill in a way that other companies just weren't doing. And so there weren't any companies that were really focused on maximizing retail for gym owners. Every company was trying to sell a gym owner something. No company was really teaching a gym owner how to sell something. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of had to learn and learn fast the keys to retail and do so in a way that would allow me to train folks who had no retail background on how to set up a retail operation and how to, you know, instead of making it a time suck, an actual revenue generating activity for your business. And so I spent the better part of sort of our early days really perfecting that process. And and we got it to a point where we could get most gyms selling our product really, really well and doing so without a lot of work from them by educating them, not necessarily on our product, but also uh, instead on retail in general and how to set up an effective retail operation. And, you know, it's not rocket science, but it does take a few things in particular that you've got to do well, such as merchandising and, you know, point of sale, basic stuff. But nobody ever teaches that in high school or college. And you don't get a a packet on how to retail stuff when you open up a gym. And so we got really, really good at filling this void in the market for helping gym owners sell stuff. And in return, it certainly helped gym owners sell a lot more of our stuff as well. In terms of the product, I'm curious to talk a bit about, I guess, just assortment and price point. Yeah. Is there are one skew or there are multiple skews. So if you're going to print an aluminum can, which from the outset we were limited because we make an oxygenated drink. Oxygen is a very small molecule, so it actually seeps out of plastic. So it's either aluminum or glass for O2, and glass is out because glass is bulky, it's expensive, and it breaks. So it's like, all right, we're just going to do aluminum. That's our packaging. To print on an aluminum can, you have to order 155,000 cans per skew. So that's a really high amount of cans if this is your first production run, right? But we're like, all right, we're going to do it. We're going to do it right. So we wanted to have more than one skew because we felt we could get lost if we didn't have more than one skew. But we also couldn't really afford to have more than two skews. So in the development process, we developed, I want to say, somewhere between four and six really, really solid flavors of O2. And we chose two for those same reasons and the ones that we chose were also kind of formulaic about the taste profiles too we wanted to have a flavor that was super approachable and we wanted to have a flavor that was kind of unique and interesting so we debuted an orange mango as the super approachable flavor most people have had orange mango something and then we also debuted a grapefruit ginger flavor which is our super unique and interesting flavor we found that people kind of enter the brand through the orange mango flavor and then they're like ah this is actually really really good let me try this other grapefruit ginger flavor i'm not crazy about grapefruit or ginger but i'll give it a shot and people love it and even the people who as i mentioned earlier just are kind of grapefruit or ginger skeptics absolutely love that flavor so it gave us enough to be dangerous on the shelf with two facings but it also wasn't so much that we had two years worth of inventory in our first production run and so over the time as we've kind of gotten those two flavors more and more in the market for the first three and a half years, those two flavors were the only option. And then we got to a point where we can entertain new flavors financially, and we did so, but it also wasn't much of a stretch because we had a type of taste profile, a base to work off of. We had a formulation that was not too sweet, very crisp, refreshing, 
nothing artificial, low sugar, no aftertaste. And so making other flavors off that base formulation wasn't too much of a challenge. And we also knew that a lot of people who were existing fans of O2 wanted something caffeine-free because either they work out at night or they want to give it to their kids instead of Gatorade. And so our second set of SKUs that we came out with was almost a replication of that same formula of the first set, the formula being an approachable flavor and a unique and interesting flavor modeled off of that base formulation. We debuted a caffeine-free lemon-lime and a caffeine-free blackberry currant. The lemon-lime was kind of the, the more approachable flavor and the blackberry currant was the unique and interesting one. And it was very, very easy to do that because we had three and a half years of customer feedback and customer demand. And it was really only one degree of, of separation from what we were already doing, or one degree of innovation. And then in terms of price point, so O2 is a fairly expensive product relative to other sports or energy drinks. It's three forty nine per can. And we priced it at a premium on purpose. One, it's you kind of get what you pay for. So it's expensive to make a high-quality product. But two, I knew that price was, and I'm sure still is, the number one indicator of quality to somebody who's never heard of the brand or the product. And so by pricing it at a slight premium to Red Bull or Highball or Fit Aid or Kill Cliff or... Which are like two bucks-ish? Yeah, high twos. Yeah. We would be conveying that, hey, this is a better product. And so that's what we did. And we've been able to generate as much, if not more, volume at those prices, which is great for the retailers too. Our margins are in line with the margins on other beverages, but for every product that's purchased, they're making a lot more per unit than they would be a lower price product. So when the retailer gets behind it like that, they'll merchandise the hell out of it. They'll build displays because they know it's going to help them hit their profit goals. Bring us up to kind of the present in terms of where your priorities were, kind of inflection points, and I guess how you're managing kind of all three parts of the business now. The biggest inflection point for us in the last few years has been when we got to a point where we could raise a significant amount of capital and start to do some of the things that I'd known that we needed to do with the business. We just didn't have any money for it. So we did a pretty comprehensive label redesign in 2017, a rebranding exercise. And that was something that was well needed and cost a good amount of money to do and to do it right. But we had made the original O2 label ourselves, me and Dan the doctor and another designer that we found basically on a PowerPoint. And that can got us so far, but it was time to kind of revamp the can and revamp the brand. And so we did so in 2017. And in conjunction with that exercise, we also started to retail at Kroger, which was a company that's super, super large and is also a local company to us. They're in Cincinnati. We were in Columbus. And Kroger had kind of been chasing us for the past few years to offer O2 available for sale in Kroger, but we just didn't have the capacity to support it. So once we got to a point where we had the capacity to support Kroger, we entered that retail environment. And that was certainly an inflection point in that it showed us that O2 could be successful outside of the gym and also outside of the 
natural grocery environment, which is just a different crowd of people. Everyday people don't really shop at Whole Foods or, or right. go to CrossFit, right? Everyday people definitely go to Kroger, and we were very, very successful there. And so if there was an inflection point, I would say it was around 2017 when we started to really get a better understanding of the brand that we wanted to build, have that reflected in the packaging, and start to work with mainstream retailers like Kroger and get a better understanding of what it took to be successful there. Did the move into Kroger and call to the broader market change how you marketed the product or was it never actually marketed as a CrossFit thing in the first place? I would say that it's evolved, certainly, kind of how we show up, for sure. We try to, and we're still wrestling with this, is how do we maintain our identity as a high-end fitness brand in a way that's not super alienating to people either. So it's changed a bit. But I wouldn't say it's changed too much because at the end of the day, O2 is certainly for people who are exercising at a high intensity and who care about what they put in their body and don't have, you know, all day to lay around after a high intensity interval training workout or or a high intensity workout. If anything, it's changed how we approach the business in terms of different retailers. So our go-to-market with Whole Foods looks a lot different than our go-to-market with Kroger because they're just going to sell different volumes of our product. And so applying the Whole Foods playbook to Kroger wouldn't make sense and applying the Kroger playbook to Whole Foods wouldn't make much sense either. In terms of scale, I guess, how do you think about what is possible and then also what is realistic through the lens of not ruining what you've created in terms of going too fast or too mm-hmm. big or so forth. Yeah, we've been pretty careful about avoiding going too fast and too soon. You know, going into this, I didn't come from a CPG background. I didn't know what I was doing, but I tried to study what led to failure in other companies. And it would often be companies trying to bite off more than they can chew too early on. So we've been real meticulous about our growth from the outset with the intention of having a line of sight to success at every single retailer. So we've never wanted to get a bunch of placements on O2 and have the product just sit on the shelf. Getting on the shelf's the easy part. It's getting off the shelf that's the hard part. But nobody tells you that when, when you start this. I look at what we can actually support, and it becomes much more of a factor of what's realistic versus what we want, right? I've got a team now of 13 people, and they're all incredible. And as much as I would love to tell you that we could support 20,000 retailers, we just couldn't support 20,000 retailers yet. You know, but we can certainly support 1,000, and we can probably support 10,000. And so as we go from guaranteed success or close to it at those 1,000 retailers, and that becomes 5,000, that becomes 10,000, we start to learn our way into what it takes to be successful at 20,000. And that's been the idea, is to grow in an incremental fashion where you can make sure that your existing retailers are successful and so that any new retailers are are probably going to be successful too. I think that the size of the market is huge. We play in a very big, attractive, growing market. And at this point, we know how to attack it. So the size of the market has never been the question. It's whether or not we can actually do it justice and we can ensure that each retailer selling our product is successful and we can ensure that any direct-to-consumer campaigns that we're running aren't just a giant waste of money. So it's not so much a question of market size as it is a question of sales and marketing for us at this point. What's been the cheapest and most expensive lesson you've learned building the business? The cheapest lesson was probably the story I mentioned earlier 
around hand stickering 150,000 cans because that was a great lesson in humility and hustle and honesty. And you make a typo on a package once, you don't make that again. That took up a lot of time and energy. By no means did it take up a ton of cost to do that. And it also gave us a foundation for a values-driven business that we treat very, very seriously today. The most expensive lesson that I've learned has probably been that there's a lot of noise out there with respect to paid social and not a lot of outside expertise that can deliver on that. I think it became very, very easy in 2014, 2015, 16, 17 maybe to build and scale a brand on cheap Facebook ads. That's not the case so much anymore. And so there are a lot of companies, a lot of ad agencies, a lot of marketing agencies that tout themselves as experts in that field. And I was in a tough position last year where I hired a group that I thought was going to be best in class and spent a ton of money with them. And our results just went from good to bad really quick. We've since taken that in-house. And I think that's been a beneficial lesson, but it's also been a pretty pricey one for me. In terms of what's on the horizon, what are you most kind of excited about in the next six to 12 months? So we've already validated the market over the past few years, and we've validated our ability to attack it and our ability to get a product that people really, really like in their hands. And we've seen them repeat purchase over and over and over again. What I'm most focused on now and most excited about is actually growing a team to do this. So we went from four people on the team at the end of last year to 13 now. And we did most of the hiring of those 13 in the past four months. And so a lot of my time now is focused on optimizing the team structure and the roles and getting everybody firing on all cylinders and rowing in the same direction. And that's really, really exciting to see what can happen when you put a group of people in the same room and give them the same kind of high level goals and let them attack it. As long as they're the right people operating under the right set of values, there's a lot of magic that can happen. How many do you drink a day and what flavor? I'll usually have two O twos a day. People ask me what the favorite flavor is. It's always kind of like picking a kid. You know, you're not really supposed to have a favorite, but if I do have a favorite, it's the grapefruit ginger, which is the caffeinated flavor. And then I'll have a caffeine free flavor after my evening workouts. I go between lemon, lime and blackberry currant pretty regularly. Would you guys ever open up your own retail store? I don't think we'd ever open up our own retail store. I think there's a lot of interesting things happening in the retail environment around this concept of kind of temporary retail, whether it's a pop-up or mobile pop-up retail environment. I think there's some cool stuff happening there that we might look at for 2020. But frankly, we haven't had the ability to even entertain doing our own retail setup when we've been focused on Whole Foods and Kroger and making sure that those guys are successful. But yeah. but I see a lot of upside in retail as sort of a brand building experience. Yeah. I guess that's my other question. Given where we started talking about how the Red Bulls and the Gatorades of the world just spend hundreds of millions, if not probably billions of dollars on marketing, do you feel a pressure or inevitability that you're going to have to play that game that they're playing of sponsoring athletes and games and all of those things? Or do you see a different path to get to where you want to go? Naively, I may see a different path. I don't see us spending the amount of time or energy, much less resources on mass marketing that the larger companies do. It's just not our game. I see a tremendous amount of upside in the types of marketing that they're probably just not looking that closely at. You know, influencer or 
paid social still, I think, has a good amount of upside. Non-traditional retail, like CrossFit, in, in many ways, is a, a marketing vehicle for us, yoga for that matter. So I think that by continuing to spend our time with more untraditional approaches to building a brand, we're only going to benefit. And, and I don't think that we could you know, go head-to-head with those guys in that more traditional type of, of environment, even if we wanted to. So I don't feel that pressure. And maybe we'll get to a point someday where we you know, have tapped out all the upside there is online and we've tapped out all the upside there is on branded partnerships and influencer type partnerships. And we go into mass advertising on TV, maybe, but I don't see that coming anytime soon. Awesome. Thanks so much for talking. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Loose Threads podcast. You can read full transcripts of the podcast and join the newsletter at loosethreads.com. Feel free to leave a review on iTunes. We always appreciate it. And thanks to George Drake Jr. for editing this episode. We have a great roster of upcoming guests, and we hope you tune in next week. Thank you.